0: Chapter 4 of The Everlasting Man by G. K. Chesterton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. God and Comparative Religion. I was once escorted over the Roman foundations of an ancient British city by a professor who said something that seems to me a satire on a good many other professors. Possibly the professor saw the joke, though he maintained an iron gravity, and may or may not have realized that it was a joke against a great deal of what is called comparative religion. I pointed out a sculpture of the head of the sun with the usual halo of rays, but with the difference that the face in the disk, instead of being boyish like Apollo, was bearded like Neptune or Jupiter yes he said with a certain delicate exactitude that is supposed to represent the local god sul the best authorities identify sul with minerva but this has been held to show that the identification is not complete that is what we call a powerful understatement the modern world is madder than any satires on it long ago mr belloc made his burlesque don say that a bust of ariadne had been proved by modern research to be a silenus but that is not better than the real appearance of Minerva as the bearded woman of Mr. Barnum, only both of them are very like many identifications by the best authorities on comparative religion, and when Catholic creeds are identified with various wild myths, I do not laugh or curse or misbehave myself, I confine myself decorously to saying that the identification is not complete. In the days of my youth, the religion of humanity was a term commonly applied to Comptism, the theory of certain rationalists who worshipped corporate mankind as a supreme being. Even in the days of my youth I remarked that there was something slightly odd about despising and dismissing the doctrine of the Trinity as a mystical and even maniacal contradiction, and then asking us to adore a deity who is a hundred million persons in one God, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. But there is another entity more or less definable and much more imaginable than the many-headed and monstrous idol of mankind, and it has a much better right to be called in a reasonable sense the religion of humanity. Man is not indeed the idol, but man is almost everywhere the idolater, and these multitudinous idolatries of mankind have something about them in many ways more human and sympathetic than modern metaphysical abstractions if an asiatic god has three heads and seven arms there is at least in it an idea of material incarnation bringing an unknown power nearer to us and not farther away but if our friends brown jones and robinson went out for a sunday walk were transformed and amalgamated into an asiatic idol before our eyes they would surely seem farther away if the arms of brown and the legs of robinson waved from the same composite body they would seem to be waving something of a sad farewell if the necks of all three gentlemen appeared smiling on the same neck we should hesitate even by what name to address our new and somewhat abnormal friend in the many-headed and many-handed oriental idol there is a certain sense of mysteries becoming at least partly intelligible of formless forces of nature taking some dark but material form. But though this may be true of the multiform God, it is not so of the multiform man. The human beings become less human by becoming less separate. We might say less human in being less lonely. The human beings become less intelligible as they become less isolated. We might say with strict truth that the closer they are to us, the farther they are away. An ethical hymn-book of this humanitarian sort of religion was carefully selected and expurgated on the principle of preserving anything human and eliminating anything divine. One consequence was that a hymn appeared in the amended form of Nearer mankind to thee, nearer to thee. It always suggested to me the sensations of a strap-hanger during a crush on the tube. But it is strange and wonderful how far away the souls of men can seem when their bodies are so near as all that. The human unity with which I deal here is not to be confounded with this modern industrial monotony and herding, which is rather a congestion than a communion. It is a thing to which human groups left to themselves, and even human individuals left to themselves, have everywhere tended by an instinct that may truly be called human. Like all healthy human things, it has varied very much within the limits of a general character, well, that is characteristic of everything belonging to the ancient land of liberty that lies before and around the servile industrial town industrialism actually boasts that its products are all of one pattern that men in jamaica or japan can break the same seal and drink the same bad whiskey that a man at the north pole and another at the south might recognize the same optimistic label on the same dubious tinned salmon but wine the gift of gods to men can vary with every valley and every vineyard can turn into a hundred wines without any wine once reminding us of whisky and cheeses can change from county to county without forgetting the difference between chalk and cheese when i am speaking of this thing therefore i am speaking of something that doubtless includes very wide differences nevertheless i will here maintain that it is one thing I will maintain that most of the modern botheration comes from not realizing that it is really one thing. I will advance the thesis that before all we'll talk about comparative religion and the separate religious founders of the world, the first essential is to recognize this thing as a whole, as a thing almost native and normal to the great fellowship that we call mankind. This thing is paganism, and I propose to show in these pages that it is the one real rival to the Church of Christ. Comparative religion is very comparative indeed, that is, it is so much a matter of degree and distance and difference that it is only comparatively successful when it tries to compare. When we come to look at it closely, we find it comparing things that are really quite incomparable. We are accustomed to see a table or catalogue of the world's great religions in parallel columns, until we fancy they are really parallel. We are accustomed to see the names of the great religious founders all in a row, Christ, Mohammed, Buddha, Confucius. But in truth this is only a trick, another of those optical illusions by which any object may be put into a particular relation by shifting to a particular point of sight. Those religions and religious founders, or rather those whom we choose to lump together as religions and religious founders, do not really show any common character. The illusion is partly produced by Islam, coming immediately after Christianity in the list, as Islam did come after Christianity and was largely an imitation of Christianity. But the other Eastern religions, or what we call religions, not only do not resemble the church, but do not resemble each other. When we come to Confucianism at the end of the list, we come to something in a totally different world of thought, to compare the Christian and Confucian religions is like comparing a theist with an English squire, or asking whether a man is a believer in immortality, or 100% American. Confucianism may be a civilization, but it is not a religion. In truth, the Church is too unique to prove herself unique. For most popular and easy proof is by parallel, and here there is no parallel. It is not easy, therefore, to expose the fallacy by which a false classification is created to swamp a unique thing, when it is really a unique thing, as there is nowhere else exactly the same fact, so there is nowhere else exactly the same fallacy. But I will take the nearest thing I can find to such a solitary social phenomenon in order to show how it is thus swamped and assimilated. I imagine most of us would agree that there is something unusual and unique about the position of the Jews there is nothing that is quite in the same sense an international nation an ancient culture scattered in different countries but still distinct and indestructible now this business is like an attempt to make a list of nomadic nations in order to soften the strange solitude of the jew it would be easy enough to do it by the same process of putting a plausible approximation first and then tailing off into totally different things thrown in somehow to make up the list Thus, in the new list of nomadic nations, the Jews would be followed by the gypsies, who at least are really nomadic, if they are not really national. Then the professor of the new science of comparative nomadics could easily pass on to something different, even if it was very different. He could remark on the wandering adventure of the English, who had scattered their colonies over so many seas, and call them nomads. It is quite true that a great many Englishmen seem to be strangely restless in England it is quite true that not all of them have left their country for their country's good the moment we mention the wandering empire of the english we must add the strange exiled empire of the irish for it is a curious fact to be noted in our imperial literature that the same ubiquity and unrest which is a proof of english enterprise and triumph is a proof of irish futility and failure then the professor of nomadism would look round thoughtfully and remember that there was great talk recently of German waiters, German barbers, German clerks, Germans naturalizing themselves in England and the United States and the South American republics. The Germans would go down as the fifth nomadic race. The words Wanderlust and folk wandering would come in very useful here for there really have been historians who explained the crusades by suggesting that the germans were found wandering as the police say in what happened to be the neighbourhood of palestine then the professor feeling he was now near the end would make a last leap in desperation he would recall the fact that the french army has captured nearly every capital in europe that it marched across countless conquered lands under charlemagne or napoleon and that would be wanderlust and that would be the note of a nomadic race. Thus he would have his six nomadic nations all compact and complete, and would feel that the Jew was no longer a sort of mysterious and even mystical exception. But people with more common sense would probably realize that he had only extended nomadism by extending the meaning of nomadism, and that he had extended that until it really had no meaning at all. It is quite true that the French soldier has made some of the finest marches in all military history, but it is equally true and far more self-evident that if the french peasant is not a rooted reality there is no such thing as a rooted reality in the world or in other words if he is a nomad there is nobody who is not a nomad now that is the sort of trick that has been tried in the case of comparative religion and the world's religious founders all standing respectably in a row it seeks to classify jesus as the other would classify jews by inventing a new class for the purpose and filling up the rest of it with stopgaps and second-rate copies i do not mean that these other things are not often great things in their own real character and class confucianism and buddhism are great things but it is not true to call them churches just as the french and english are great peoples but it is nonsense to call them nomads there are some points of resemblance between christendom and its imitation in islam for that matter there are some points of resemblance between jews and gipsies but after that the lists are made up of anything that comes to hand, of anything that can be put in the same catalogue without being in the same category. In this sketch of religious history, with all decent deference to men much more learned than myself, I propose to cut across and disregard this modern method of classification which I feel sure has falsified the facts of history i shall here submit an alternative classification of religion or religions which i believe would be found to cover all the facts and what is quite as important here all the fancies instead of dividing religion geographically and as it were vertically into christian muslim brahmin buddhist and so on i would divide it psychologically and in some sense horizontally into the strata of spiritual elements and influences that could sometimes exist in the same country or even in the same man putting the church apart for the moment i should be disposed to divide the natural religion of the mass of mankind under such headings as these god the gods the demons the philosophers i believe some such classification will help us to sort out the spiritual experiences of men much more successfully than the conventional business of comparing religions and that many famous figures will naturally fall into their place in this way who are only forced into their place in the other as i shall make use of these titles or terms more than once in narrative and allusions it will be well to define at this stage for what i mean them to stand and i will begin with the first the simplest and the most sublime in this chapter in considering the elements of pagan humanity we must begin by an attempt to describe the indescribable many get over the difficulty of describing it by the expedient of denying it or at least ignoring it but the whole point of it is that it was something that was never quite eliminated even when it was ignored they are obsessed by their evolutionary monomania that every great thing grows from a seed or something smaller than itself they seem to forget that every seed comes from a tree or from something larger than itself. Now there is very good ground for guessing that religion did not originally come from some detail that was forgotten, because it was too small to be traced. Much more probably it was an idea that was abandoned because it was too large to be managed. There is very good reason to suppose that many people did begin with the simple but overwhelming idea of one God who governs all, and afterwards fell away into such things as demon-worship almost as a sort of secret dissipation. Even the test of savage beliefs, of which the folklore students are so fond, is admittedly often found to support such a view. Some of the very rudest savages, primitive in every sense in which anthropologists use the word, the Australian aborigines, for instance, are found to have a pure monotheism with a high moral tone, a missionary was preaching to a very wild tribe of polytheists, who had told him all their polytheistic tales, and telling them in return of the existence of the one good God, who is a spirit and judges men by spiritual standards. And there was a sudden buzz of excitement among these stolid barbarians, as at somebody who was letting out a secret, and they cried to each other, "'Atahokan, he is speaking of Atahokan.' Probably it was a point of politeness and even decency among those polytheists not to speak of Atahokan. The name is not, perhaps, so much adapted as some of our own to direct and solemn religious exhortation, but many other social forces are always covering up and confusing such simple ideas. Possibly the old god stood for an old morality, found irksome in more expansive moments, Possibly intercourse with demons was more fashionable among the best people, as in the modern fashion of spiritualism. Anyhow, there are any number of similar examples. They all testify to the unmistakable psychology of a thing taken for granted, as distinct from a thing talked about. There is a striking example in a tale taken down word for word from a red Indian in California, which starts out with a hearty legendary and literary relish— the sun is the father and ruler of the heavens, he is the big chief, the moon is his wife and the stars are their children, and so on through a most ingenious and complicated story, in the middle of which is a sudden parenthesis, saying that sun and moon have to do something because it is ordered that way by the great spirit who lives above the place of all. That is exactly the attitude of most paganism towards God. He is something assumed and forgotten and remembered by accident a habit possibly not peculiar to pagans. Sometimes the higher deity is remembered in the higher moral grades, and is a sort of mystery. But always, it has been truly said, the savage is talkative about his mythology, and taciturn about his religion. The Australian savages indeed exhibit a topsy-turvydom such as the ancients might have thought truly worthy of the Antipodes, the savage who thinks nothing of tossing off such a trifle as a tale of the sun and moon being the halves of a baby chopped in two or dropping into small talk about a colossal cosmic cow milked to make the rain merely in order to be sociable will then retire to secret caverns sealed against women and white men temples of terrible initiation where to the thunder of the bull-roarer and the dripping of sacrificial blood the priest whispers the final secrets known only to the initiate that honesty is the best policy that a little kindness does nobody any harm that all men are brothers and that there is but one god the father almighty maker of all things visible and invisible in other words we have here the curiosity of religious history that the savage seems to be parading all the most repulsive and impossible parts of his belief and concealing all the most sensible and creditable parts but the explanation is that they are not in that sense parts of his belief or at least not parts of the same sort of belief the myths are merely tall stories though as tall as the sky the waterspout or the tropic rain the mysteries are true stories, and are taken secretly, that they may be taken seriously. Indeed, it is only too easy to forget that there is a thrill in theism. A novel in which a number of separate characters all turned out to be the same character would certainly be a sensational novel. It is so with the idea that sun and tree and river are the disguises of one god, and not of many. Alas, we also find it only too easy to take Atahokan for granted. But whether he is allowed to fade into a truism or preserved as a sensation by being preserved as a secret, it is clear that he is always either an old truism or an old tradition. There is nothing to show that he is an improved product of the mere mythology and everything to show that he preceded it. He is worshipped by the simplest tribes with no trace of ghosts or grave offerings or any of the complications in which Herbert Spencer and Grant Allen sought the origin of the simplest of all ideas whatever else there was there was never any such thing as the evolution of the idea of god the idea was concealed was avoided was almost forgotten was even explained away but it was never evolved there are not a few implications of this change in other places it is implied for instance in the fact that even polytheism seems often the combination of several monotheisms a god will gain only a minor seat on mount olympus when he had owned earth and heaven and all the stars while he lived in his own little valley like many a small nation melting in a great empire he gives up local universality only to come under universal limitation the very name of pan suggests that he became a god of the wood when he had been a god of the world the very name of jupiter is almost a pagan translation of the words our Father which art in heaven. As with the great Father symbolized by the sky, so with the great Mother, whom we still call Mother Earth. Demeter and Ceres and Cybele often seem to be almost incapable of taking over the whole business of godhood, so that men should need no other gods. It seems reasonably probable that a good many men did have no other gods but one of these worshipped as the author of all. Over some of the most immense and populous tracts of the world, such as China, it would seem that the simpler idea of the Great Father has never been very much complicated with rival cults, though it may have in some sense ceased to be a cult itself. The best authorities seem to think that though Confucianism is in one sense agnosticism, it does not directly contradict the old theism, precisely because it has become a rather vague theism. It is one in which God is called heaven, as in the case of polite persons tempted to swear in drawing rooms, but heaven is still overhead, even if it is very far overhead. We have all the impression of a simple truth that has receded until it was remote without ceasing to be true. And this phrase alone would bring us back to the same idea even in the pagan mythology of the West there is surely something of the very notion of the withdrawal of some higher power in all those mysterious and very imaginative myths about the separation of earth and sky. In a hundred forms we are told that earth and heaven were once lovers, or were once at one, when some upstart thing, often some undutiful child, thrust them apart, and the world was built on an abyss, upon a division and a parting. One of its grossest versions was given by greek civilization in the myth of uranus and saturn one of its most charming versions was that of some savage niggers who say that a little pepper plant grew taller and taller and lifted the whole sky like a lid a beautiful barbaric vision of daybreak for some of our painters who love that tropical twilight of myths and the highly mythical explanations which the moderns offer of myths something will be said in another section, for I cannot but think that most mythology is on another and more superficial plane. But in this primeval vision of the rending of one world into two, there is surely something more of ultimate ideas. As to what it means, a man will learn far more about it by lying on his back in a field and merely looking at the sky, than by reading all the libraries, even of the most learned and valuable folklore." He will know what is meant by saying that the sky ought to be nearer to us than it is, that perhaps it was once nearer than it is, that it is not a thing merely alien and abysmal, but in some fashion sundered from us and saying farewell. There will creep across his mind the curious suggestion that, after all, perhaps the myth-maker was not merely a moon-calf or village idiot, thinking he could cut up the clouds like a cake, but had in him something more than it is fashionable to attribute to the troglodyte. That it is just possible that Thomas Hood was not talking like a troglodyte when he said that as time went on, the treetops only told him he was further off from heaven than when he was a boy. But anyhow, the legend of Uranus, the Lord of Heaven, dethroned by Saturn, the Time Spirit, would mean something to the author of that poem, and it would mean, among other things, this banishment of the first fatherhood. There is the idea of God in the very notion that there were gods before the gods there is an idea of greater simplicity in all the allusions to that more ancient order the suggestion is supported by the process of propagation we see in historic times gods and demigods and heroes breed like herrings before our very eyes and suggest of themselves that the family may have had one founder mythology grows more and more complicated and the very complication suggests that at the beginning it was more simple even on the external evidence of the sort called scientific, there is therefore a very good case for the suggestion that man began with monotheism before it developed, or degenerated, into polytheism. But I am concerned rather with an internal than an external truth, and, as I have already said, the internal truth is almost indescribable. We have to speak of something of which it is the whole point that people did not speak of it, we have not merely to translate from a strange tongue or speech but from a strange silence i suspect an immense implication behind all polytheism and paganism i suspect we have only a hint of it here and there in these savage creeds or greek origins it is not exactly what we mean by the presence of god in a sense it might more truly be called the absence of god but absence does not mean non-existence and a man drinking the toast of absent friends does not mean that from his life all friendship is absent it is a void but it is not a negation it is something as positive as an empty chair it would be an exaggeration to say that the pagan saw higher than olympus an empty throne it would be nearer the truth to take the gigantic imagery of the old testament in which the prophets saw god from behind it was as if some immeasurable presence had turned its back on the world yet the meaning will again be missed if it is supposed to be anything so conscious and vivid as the monotheism of moses and his people i do not mean that the pagan peoples were in the least overpowered by this idea merely because it is overpowering on the contrary it was so large that they all carried it lightly as we all carry the load of the sky gazing at some detail like a bird or a cloud we can all ignore its awful blue background we can neglect the sky and precisely because it bears down upon us with an annihilating force it is felt as nothing a thing of this kind can only be an impression and a rather subtle impression but to me it is a very strong impression made by pagan literature and religion i repeat that in our special sacramental sense there is of course the absence of the presence of god but there is in a very real sense the presence of the absence of god we feel it in the unfathomable sadness of pagan poetry for i doubt if there was ever in all the marvellous manhood of antiquity a man who was happy as st francis was happy we feel it in the legend of a golden age and again in the vague implication that the gods themselves are ultimately related to something else even when that unknown god has faded into a fate above all we feel it in those immortal moments when the pagan literature seems to return to a more innocent antiquity and speak with a more direct voice so that no word is worthy of it except our own monotheistic monosyllable we cannot say anything but god in a sentence like that of socrates bidding farewell to his judges i go to die and you remain to live and god alone knows which of us goes the better way we can use no other word even for the best moments of Marcus Aurelius. Can they say, dear city of Cecrops, and canst thou not say, dear city of God? We can use no other word in that mighty line in which Virgil spoke to all who suffer with the veritable cry of a Christian before Christ, O you that have borne things more terrible, to this also God shall give an end. In short, there is a feeling that there is something higher than the God's but because it is higher, it is also further away. Not yet could even Virgil have read the riddle and the paradox of that other divinity, who is both higher and nearer. For them what was truly divine was very distant, so distant that they dismissed it more and more from their minds. It had less and less to do with the mere mythology of what I shall write later. Yet even in this there was a sort of tacit admission of its intangible purity, when we consider what most of the mythology is like as the Greeks would not degrade it by images, so the Greeks did not degrade it even by imaginations. When the gods were more and more remembered only by pranks and profligacies, it was relatively a movement of reverence. It was an act of piety to forget God. In other words, there is something in the whole tone of the time suggesting that men had accepted a lower level, and still were half conscious that it was a lower level it is hard to find words for these things yet the one really just word stands ready these men were conscious of the fall if they were conscious of nothing else and the same is true of all heathen humanity those who have fallen may remember the fall even when they forget the height some such tantalizing blank or break in memory as at the back of all pagan sentiment there is such a thing as the momentary power to remember that we forget and the most ignorant of humanity know by the very look of earth that they have forgotten heaven. But it remains true that even for these men there were moments, like the memories of childhood, when they heard themselves talking with a simpler language. There were moments when the Roman, like Virgil in the line already quoted, cut his way with a sword-stroke of song out of the tangle of the mythologies. The motley mob of gods and goddesses sank suddenly out of sight, and the sky father was alone in the sky." This latter example is very relevant to the next step in the process. A white light, as of a lost morning, still lingers on the figure of Jupiter, of Pan, or of the elder Apollo, and it may well be, as already noted, that each was once a divinity as solitary as Jehovah or Allah. They lost this lonely universality by a process it is here very necessary to note, a process of amalgamation very like what was afterwards called syncretism the whole pagan world set itself to build a pantheon they admitted more and more gods gods not only of the greeks but of the barbarians gods not only of europe but of asia and africa the more the merrier though some of the asian and african ones were not very merry they admitted them to equal thrones with their own sometimes they identified them with their own they may have regarded it as an enrichment of their religious life but it meant the final loss of all that we now call religion it meant that ancient light of simplicity that had a single source like the sun finally fades away in a dazzle of conflicting lights and colors god is really sacrificed to the gods in a very literal sense of the flippant phrase they have been too many for him polytheism therefore was really a sort of pool in the sense of the pagans having consented to the pooling of their pagan religions and this point is very important in many controversies ancient and modern it is regarded as a liberal and enlightened thing to say that the god of the stranger may be as good as our own and doubtless the pagans thought themselves very liberal and enlightened when they agreed to add to the gods of the city or the hearth some wild and fantastic dionysus coming down from the mountains or some shaggy and rustic pan creeping out of the woods but exactly what it lost by these larger ideas is the largest idea of all. It is the idea of the fatherhood that makes the whole world one. And the converse is also true. Doubtless those more antiquated men of antiquity, who clung to their solitary statues and their single sacred names, were regarded as superstitious savages, benighted and left behind." but these superstitious savages were preserving something that is much more like the cosmic power as conceived by philosophy or even as conceived by science this paradox by which the rude reactionary was a sort of prophetic progressive has one consequence very much to the point in a purely historical sense and apart from any other controversies in the same connection it throws a light a single and a steady light that shines from the beginning on a little and lonely people in this paradox as in some riddle of religion of which the answer was sealed up for centuries lies the mission and the meaning of the jews it is true in this sense humanly speaking that the world owes god to the jews it owes that truth to much that is blamed in the jews possibly to much that is blamable in the jews we have already noted the nomadic position of the jews amid the other pastoral peoples upon the fringe of the babylonian empire and something of that strange erratic course of theirs blazed across the dark territory of extreme antiquity as they passed from the seat of abraham and the shepherd princes into egypt and doubled back into the palestinian hills and held them against the philistines from crete and fell into captivity in babylon and yet returned again to their mountain city by the zionist policy of the persian conquerors and so continued that amazing romance of restlessness of which we have not yet seen the end but through all their wanderings and especially through all their early wanderings they did indeed carry the fate of the world in that wooden tabernacle that held perhaps a featureless symbol and certainly an invisible god we may say that one most essential feature was that it was featureless much as we may prefer that creative liberty which the christian culture has declared and by which it has eclipsed even the arts of antiquity we must not underrate the determining importance at the time of the hebrew inhibition of images it is a typical example of one of those limitations that did in fact preserve and perpetuate enlargement, like a wall built round a wide open space. The God, who could not have a statue, remained a spirit. Nor would his statue, in any case, have had the disarming dignity and grace of the Greek statues then, or the Christian statues afterwards. He was living in a land of monsters. We shall have occasion to consider more fully what those monsters were, Moloch and Dagon and Tanit, the terrible goddess. If the deity of Israel had ever had an image, he would have had a phallic image. By merely giving him a body, they would have brought in all the worst elements of mythology, all the polygamy of polytheism, the vision of the harem in heaven this point about the refusal of art is the first example of the limitations which are often adversely criticised only because the critics themselves are limited but an even stronger case can be found in the other criticism offered by the same critics it is often said with a sneer that the god of israel was only a god of battles a mere barbaric lord of hosts pitted in rivalry against other gods only as their envious foe well it is for the world that he was a god of battles. Well it is for us that he was, to all the rest, only a rival and a foe. In the ordinary way, it would have been only too easy for them to have achieved the desolate disaster of conceiving him as a friend. It would have been only too easy for them to have seen him stretching out his hands in love and reconciliation, embracing Baal and kissing the painted face of Astore, feasting in fellowship with the gods, the last god to sell his crown of stars for the soma of the indian pantheon or the nectar of olympus or the mead of valhalla it would have been easy enough for his worshippers to follow the enlightened course of syncretism and the pooling of all the pagan traditions it is obvious indeed that his followers were always sliding down this easy slope and it required the almost demoniac energy of certain inspired demagogues who testified to the divine unity in words that are still like winds of inspiration and ruin. The more we really understand of the ancient conditions that contributed to the final culture of the faith, the more we shall have a real and even a realistic reverence for the greatness of the prophets of Israel. As it was, while the whole world melted into this mass of confused mythology, this deity, who is called tribal and narrow, precisely because he was what is called tribal and narrow, preserved the primary religion of all mankind. He was tribal enough to be universal. He was as narrow as the universe. In a word, there was a popular pagan god called Jupiter Ammon. There was never a god called Jehovah Ammon. There was never a god called Jehovah Jupiter. If there had been, there would certainly have been another called Jehovah Moloch. Long before the liberal and enlightened amalgamators had got so far afield as Jupiter, the image of the Lord of Hosts would have been deformed out of all suggestion of a monotheistic maker and ruler, and would have become an idol far worse than any savage fetish, for he might have been as civilized as the gods of Tyre and Carthage. What that civilization meant we shall consider more fully in the chapter that follows, when we note how the power of demons nearly destroyed Europe, and even the heathen health of the world. But the world's destiny would have been distorted still more fatally if monotheism had failed in the Mosaic tradition. I hope in a subsequent section to show that I am not without sympathy with all that health in the heathen world that made its fairy tales and its fanciful romances of religion but i hope also to show that these were bound to fail in the long run and the world would have been lost if it had been unable to return to that great original simplicity of a single authority in all things that we do preserve something of that primary simplicity that poets and philosophers can still indeed in some sense say an universal prayer that we live in a large and serene world under a sky that stretches paternally over all the peoples of the earth that philosophy and philanthropy are truisms in a religion of reasonable men all that we do most truly owe under heaven to a secretive and restless nomadic people who bestowed on men the supreme and serene blessing of a jealous god the unique possession was not available or accessible to the pagan world because it was also the possession of a jealous people the jews were unpopular partly because of this narrowness already noted in the roman world partly perhaps because they had already fallen into that habit of merely handling things for exchange instead of working to make them with their hands it was partly also because polytheism had become a sort of jungle in which solitary monotheism could be lost but it is strange to realize how completely it really was lost apart from more disputed matters there were things in the tradition of israel which belonged to all humanity now and might have belonged to all humanity then they had one of the colossal cornerstones of the world the book of job it obviously stands over against the iliad and the greek tragedies and even more than they it was an early meeting and parting of poetry and philosophy in the morning of the world it is a solemn and uplifting sight to see those two eternal fools the optimist and the pessimist destroyed in the dawn of time and the philosophy really perfects the pagan tragic irony precisely because it is more monotheistic and therefore more mystical indeed the book of job avowedly only answers mystery with mystery job is comforted with riddles but he is comforted herein is indeed a type in the sense of a prophecy of things speaking with authority for when he who doubts can only say I do not understand. It is true that he who knows can only reply or repeat, You do not understand. And under that rebuke there is always a sudden hope in the heart, and the sense of something that would be worth understanding. But this mighty monotheistic poem remained unremarked by the whole world of antiquity, which was thronged with polytheistic poetry. It is a sign of the way in which the Jews stood apart and kept their tradition unshaken and unshared, that they should have kept a thing like the book of Job out of the whole intellectual world of antiquity. It is as if the Egyptians had modestly concealed the great pyramid. But there were other reasons for a cross-purpose and an impasse characteristic of the whole of the end of paganism. After all, the tradition of Israel had only got hold of one half of the truth, even if we use the popular paradox and call it the bigger half." i shall try to sketch in the next chapter that love of locality and of personality that ran through mythology here it need only be said that there was a truth in it that could not be left out though it were a lighter and less essential truth the sorrow of job had to be joined with the sorrow of hector and while the former was the sorrow of the universe the latter was the sorrow of the city for hector could only stand pointing to heaven as the pillar of holy Troy when god speaks out of the whirlwind he may well speak in the wilderness but the monotheism of the nomad was not enough for all that varied civilization of fields and fences and walled cities and temples and towns and the turn of these things also was to come when the two could be combined in a more definite and domestic religion here and there in all that pagan crowd could be found a philosopher whose thoughts ran on pure theism but he never had, or supposed that he had, the power to change the customs of the whole populace. Nor is it easy even in such philosophies to find a true definition of this deep business of the relation of polytheism and theism. Perhaps the nearest we can come to striking the note, or giving the thing a name, is in something far away from all that civilization, and more remote from Rome than the isolation of Israel. It is in a saying I once heard from some Hindu tradition that gods as well as men are only the dreams of Brahma, and will perish when Brahma wakes. There is indeed in such an image something of the soul of Asia, which is less sane than the soul of Christendom. We should call it despair, even if they would call it peace. This note of nihilism can be considered later in a fuller comparison between Asia and Europe it is enough to say here that there is more of disillusion in that idea of a divine awakening than is implied for us in the passage from mythology to religion but the symbol is very subtle and exact in one respect that it does suggest the disproportion and even disruption between the very ideas of mythology and religion the chasm between the two categories it is really the collapse of comparative religion that there is no comparison between god and the gods there is no more comparison than there is between a man and the men who walked about in his dreams under the next heading some attempt will be made to indicate the twilight of that dream in which the gods walk about like men but if anyone fancies the contrast of monotheism and polytheism is only a matter of some people having one god and others a few more for him it will be far nearer the truth to plunge into the elephantine extravagance of brahman cosmology that he may feel a shudder going through the veil of things the many-handed creators and the thronged and haloed animals and all the network of entangled stars and rulers of the night as the awful eyes of brahma open like dawn upon the death of all End of chapter four